That was the fastest you ever did that. <laughs> okay, good. So let's see. So Jesse, how do we get the first slide up? It'll show up eventually. There we go. So I do the slideshow thing. Slideshow thing. Do to do. Play from the start. It's not doing it. Do to do. See, this is where you have to be resilient. It's when your technology gets wibbly. Hmm. Can you help me, Jesse? Asking for help. Part of resilience. Yay! Done. See? Right there. That's the whole workshop. So, first let me say that I'm really pleased to be here. Spirit Rock's very much my home uh, center. Uh, We started coming here when our kids were very little, which was a long time ago. And one thing led to another, and I ended up on the board here and been involved here. And I am very grateful uh, for Spirit Rock and hope you'll join me in supporting it. Uh, Beyond that, I'm very grateful that you showed up today. Uh, I hope to have a collaborative workshop with you today that explores how to grow that uh, core inside that uh, preserves a fundamental freedom in relationship to conditions, in relationship to events, to circumstances outside ourselves, and in relationship to the state of the physical body and what arises in the mind. That's that unshakable core. I think of it as something like an inner temple or inner sanctuary that's marked by some kind of boundary that says, okay, uh, the storms may come outside me, they may come from within me, but somewhere deep down inside, which makes all the difference in the world, there's a place of stillness and freedom and choice. That's the fundamental unshakable core. Other stuff may arise around it. Like, for example, I think two and a half days ago, I was in France. Uh, so my body is somewhere over the Azores. It's, you know, it's slowly catching up to Spirit Rock. I look at myself in the mirror. I go, dude, you look tired. Well, so what? I mean, I am tired, but it's around the periphery. The question is, what's in the core of our being? Um, I think back often to... Um, a statement as best we know that came from the Buddha as he was describing his own kind of run-up to awakening. And as he got closer and closer to it, he said, painful feelings arose, pleasurable feelings arose, all kinds of stuff came up, but it did not invade my mind and remain. That's the key distinction. Does it invade and remain? And so I hope to work with you today and explore with you today in a very embodied way, grounded in modern neuroscience that's telling us lots of useful things about how to uh, maximize our development and our learning from experiences we're having. In an embodied way, how do we um, grow the fundamental basis in the body, especially our nervous system, uh, which, of course, is the foundation of our, of our mind, certainly inside the natural frame. Uh, how do we actually grow the fundamental internal causes and conditions in the body of that increasingly unshakable core? So that's what I hope to explore with you today. Uh, to do that, uh, we'll, I'll rattle on a bit. 
Uh, we'll do some experiential practices. We'll have some discussion. Uh, we'll take a break in the morning, a break in the afternoon. We'll have an hour-long lunch break as well. Um, the material I'm going to move through uh, will summarize some of the material that I've already presented in different ways. So some of this might be familiar to you. I'm really going to try to get to the core of the matter. And um, in particular, talk about the process of growing inner resources. And then I'm going to focus on three key inner resources with you. Calm, contentment, and confidence as a major um, pillars uh, of uh, that unshakable core of resilient well-being. Right. Pretty straightforward. If you want to get up um, before the breaks, that's really okay. Um, uh, if you, during the guided practices, want to stand uh, or lie down, uh, walk around, it's really okay. Uh, I'm going to focus here certainly on um, sort of positive material, you know, resources, beneficial experiences, beneficial states, beneficial traits. But if anything is too uncomfortable for you, or stirs you up, uh, it's really good and it's okay to go your own way. Feel free to ignore everything I'm saying, you know, take what's useful for you and just, you know, leave the rest. So, and it's okay if during a guided practice something, you know, is bothersome or difficult to just walk away from it if that feels like the wisest thing for you. Okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, good, great. Okay, so ready to go? Of course, we're already going, but anyway, I'll keep going. <clears throat> Let's see. I think, we're, I think we're good. All right. Okay. All right. So, inner resources of resilient well-being. Resilience is two things, really. It's the capacity to recover from or endure or, quote-unquote, bounce back from adversity, terrible things very important aspect of resilience. But there's a second aspect of resilience that really, I think, needs more attention because it's the kind of resilience we typically draw upon day to day, which is to keep pursuing our goals, keep pursuing opportunities, including the opportunities to contribute to others in the face of challenges. Adversity, pardon me, resilience helps us, you know, survive the worst day of our life, but it also helps us thrive every day of our life. And it's both kinds of resilience that I'm going to focus on here with you, uh, and certainly the second one. So the question is, why be resilient? Resilience is not an end in itself. It's a means to the end, broadly, of well-being, which includes both what's called hedonic well-being, ordinary pleasure, quality of life, joy, uh, enjoyment, uh, warm-hearted feelings, as well as eudaimonic well-being, a sense of meaning or purpose. Uh, Both of them are important. Um, They work together. Eudaimonic well-being, a sense of meaning and purpose and fulfillment, is often built from, in part at least, hedonic well-being. On the other hand, there's a difference. Uh, I think back on when our kids were little and I'd get up at three in the morning for the third time and walk our infant, you know, son or daughter back to sleep. And it wasn't a lot of hedonic well-being in the moment. And yet it was really the most important thing I was doing in my life. Deeply fulfilling. So that's eudaimonic well-being. Both of them are important. 
to have any kind of lasting well-being in a changing world, in a challenging world, uh, a world that's challenging externally, politically and otherwise, can be challenging internally in terms of a body that's aging, it's facing disease, ultimately death, mental challenges arise in part often related to our previous life experiences, especially in childhood, to have any kind of sustained well-being. Um, you know, it's easy to have well-being when you're in a hammock and you're getting a mani-pedi. Not that I've ever had one, but the IV chocolate, you know, it's all good. And they're praising you and you're getting all these five-star reviews on Amazon. And like, yeah, lay it on me. Well-being's easy then, right? But how do you have well-being when you're dealing with your job or a commute or the body or somebody you don't like on television, you know, spouting off? Uh, how do you do that? Well, to do that, you know, we need to have that resilience. Um, it's one way of describing resilience in a kind of Buddhist frame is to be able to walk evenly over uneven ground or to kind of paraphrase a, a saying from um, a teacher I've heard, uh, to be able to see a noisy world with quiet eyes. Right? So we need resilience for any kind of sustained well-being. Well-being is founded in resilience. Right? What's resilience founded in? Well, resilience is the result certainly of external conditions that help protect us, but external conditions come and go. They're not always reliable. Uh, one of, I think, the um, you know, powerful penetrating reflections for many people these days is it doesn't seem like the cavalry is coming. Uh, you know, it, uh, it feels increasingly like, whoa, self-reliance. You know, how are we going to help ourselves? And so primarily, and as a lot of research shows, the primary factor that shapes uh, whether a person is resilient, in addition to the state of their physical body, are their mental resources. Their psychological resources of various kinds. And growing those resources and using them, but especially growing them, uh, is going to be my focus today. So some classic inner resources uh, include in the Buddhist tradition the three fundamental pillars of practice or awakening. Wisdom, uh, concentration, and virtue. Those words get defined in different ways. Uh, also, in the Buddhist tradition, uh, some of the major so-called uh, immeasurables, or Brahma-viharas, uh, kindness, compassion, and uh, love. Uh, emotional intelligence, uh, character virtues. I was a Boy Scout. Uh, we had a pretty rogue troop. I don't remember very much, but I remember four, I think, of the 12 things. A Boy Scout is thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. All right, so maybe those are virtues, too. Positive emotions, fantastic inner resources, gratitude, sense of satisfaction, happiness altogether. Um, is, uh, those are really powerful strengths that help people recover from difficulty, protect the body, protect the mind, keep on going, and incline toward other people. Interpersonal skills, and then, of course, things like patience, determination, and grit. These are fundamental um, inner resources.
Okay? They're the strengths. You know, I've done a lot of wilderness things. You know, you go out uh, for a day, you ask yourself, what's in my backpack? Right? It's kind of the outdoor version of what's in your wallet. And so, what's in your backpack? You got some water, got some food, got a pocket knife, got some good things. You know, what can you take with you? Including peripheral vision that can track that Christina wants to make an announcement. This Mini Cooper's still on. Okay, someone. Uh, so, quick story. I, my, I had a friend who told me that when she was in Berkeley at a preschool meeting many years ago, 300 parents in the room, uh, an announcement was given. Will someone with a Volvo and its lights on, you know, turn them off? Like half the room stood up. So we have here a gray Mini Cooper uh, with its lights on, I guess, right? And the engine is still running. Wow. Keys are, you know. I don't know. Well, but we don't violate the second precept here. We don't take what's not freely offered. But anyway, gray Mini Cooper, if that's your car, or if you want one, anyway. <laughs> License 8ALG773. Okay, that's your car, so it's, it's out there. Okay, good. You may want to go fix it or something or turn it off. Okay, so, Omer? <clears throat> And you may notice there's a, a very important inner resource I haven't mentioned here yet, which is mindfulness, uh, which helps us develop and use and identify as well. Three aspects of dealing with inner resources. Identifying them, knowing that you've got them, using them, and in a way, perhaps most important of all, growing them, acquiring them, which is going to be our primary focus here. Well, mindfulness is absolutely essential and necessary in being able to do all that. And mindfulness itself is an inner resource we can grow. So mindfulness is, you know, it's kind of everywhere these days. Um, The word gets defined in different ways. I tend to use the kind of narrower traditional definition as simply sustained present moment awareness. That sustained present moment awareness of mindfulness can open wide to include everything. It can narrow down to be highly concentrated. And it can be directed toward external conditions like the play of emotion on the face of another person, mindfulness of the other. Uh, And mindfulness can be directed internally in terms of self-awareness. Very often mindfulness is only spoken of as self-awareness, but it really is relevant to uh, the environment around us as well. Alongside mindfulness can be present many other things. Investigation, insight, self-compassion, curiosity, effort of various kinds. These days as well, sometimes mindfulness is defined in a very restricted way as simply the most inert, uh, receptive form of bear witnessing. That's a profound uh, usage of mindfulness, but much of the time we are being mindful while also doing other things alongside that mindfulness in the mind. Mindfulness itself is observant. 
but alongside that mindfulness, if we choose, we might be making uh, interventions of various kinds in our stream of consciousness. Letting go of tension, letting go of difficult, uh, you know, unhelpful thoughts or beliefs, letting go of unwholesome, unhelpful desires. Or maybe alongside that mindfulness, we might be growing, we might be cultivating uh, various qualities of mind and heart. And that uh, uh, point there is where I'm going to focus a lot today as well, how to cultivate. But just because we're cultivating or just because we're releasing doesn't mean we're not being mindful. We can be mindful while also engaging in wise effort. Okay. So I thought we could do a little practice of mindfulness right now. And then on the basis of that, I'll keep going and I'll segue fairly quickly into the fundamental neuropsychology, actually, of growing inner resources. So you want to, ready to do a little experiential practice here? This will be about 10 or 15 minutes. And to give you a, a bit of neuro, practical neuroscience about it, as we get into this, I'm going to, you know, gently suggest from time to time that you get a sense of mindfulness of your body as a whole. And as we fan out our awareness to include things as a whole, the sensations in the body of breathing as a whole, maybe even going further, the sense of mind as a whole, or you can also do this visually with the room as a whole, as we move out into that more gestalt kind of awareness, taking things as a whole in which there are many little elements or textures, as we fan attention out to the whole, we tend to move activation from midline cortical networks that are involved with task-oriented doing, more in the front of them, or kind of ruminating or daydreaming. That's great. Or, or you know, spacing out you know, in the default mode network, so-called, as we move out into a sense of things as a whole, we tend to engage lateral networks, especially on the right side of the brain for right-handed people and switched for many left-handed people, uh, because for most people, the right hemisphere of the brain is more involved with gestalt holistic processing. Well, as we do that, as we activate those networks on the side of the head, um, that tends to draw us into the present moment, which supports our mindfulness and tends to disengage us from future or past and tends to reduce self-referential processing, you know, taking life so personally, which also supports our mindfulness and has other benefits as well. It's kind of a nice practical finding uh, from neuroscience that if we get a sense of things as a whole, um, that uh, support, stimulates and over time strengthens those networks, which then help us sustain that present moment mindfulness. Nice, useful detail, huh? All right. So let's, and a good illustration of the larger point that a little bit of knowledge of what's under the hood in the three pounds of tofu inside the coconut. All right, uh, can be actually really practically useful. All right, so let's let's begin. Uh, I'll suggest mindfulness of breathing, but feel very free to pick a different kind of anchor for attention. Some, for some people, awareness of breathing is uncomfortable, alarming, especially if there's a history of trauma. Uh, feel free to 
focus on sensations elsewhere in the body that perhaps are more neutral, like in the hands or the feet, or use a word as your object of attention, your anchor for attention. Um, helps you stay centered while the whole stream of consciousness is rolling by. Maybe a word like peace or love or uh, an image or just a, a feeling of warm-heartedness or gratitude. You can take a feeling like gratitude or warm-heartedness as your anchor or object of attention. But that said, I'll talk about the sensations of breathing. Okay, so let's begin. Coming here, including everything passing through awareness, including the sounds of a sweet baby. In effect, being the space through which experiences flow. It can be helpful to be aware of breathing, breathing naturally. Not resisting any thoughts, not trying to make your mind quiet. Just simply not following thoughts or fueling them. Staying in the now. Aware of the sensations now of inhaling. Exhaling. Being aware of tendencies of the mind to dart around or look for something more stimulating. No problem. And helping attention to collect and settle into the simple ongoing livingness of the body, breathing, being. In mindfulness, there's a sense of a kind of receptive, relaxed awareness. Of what's moving through the mind.
So if you like, you can become increasingly aware of the sensations of breathing in larger and larger areas of your body taken as a whole, such as the the sensations of breathing in the chest as a whole. It's like your attention is widening to include the whole torso. Including sensations in the back as the chest rises and falls. In the belly, the abdomen. including the sense of cool air coming in, slightly warmer air going out. Feeling free to expand to include the whole body at your own pace. That said, I'll mention now including sensations in the neck, the head, as breathing continues. including sensations in the face, around the nose or lips, the mouth.
all these parts included in a unified whole experience of breathing. including sensations in the shoulders, arms, and hands as you breathe. Gradually including all the sensations in the body, including the hips, the base of the abdomen, legs, knees and feet. Increasingly relaxing and abiding as a whole body breathing.
Okay. So we'll be coming back to mindfulness from time to time and um, I want to keep going if I could a bit and talk about the actual how of cultivation, open it up for discussion and then we'll probably take a break in about half an hour. Uh, okay. For myself, by the way, I should add that that skill of being able to sustain a sense of things as a whole, which in the beginning can tend to kind of crumble as we move back into a more ordinary uh, attention to this, attention to that, attention to this, attention to that, pop, 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 pop kind of way of thinking. But over time, being able to expand the field of awareness to to include all the little pop, 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 pops of sensation or sound or thought as a single unified whole, uh, that skill is really, really useful. And it's a good thing to to practice with over time. And if, like me, it was kind of hard to do in the very beginning, uh, if you stick with it, you'll, as research shows actually as well, you can, uh, through repetition, stimulate, and through stimulation, strengthen those lateral networks in the brain. Uh, and be able, therefore, to sustain more of that ongoing present moment awareness with the bonus benefit of maybe less sense of taking life so personally. All right. So, inner resources. It's easy to, I think, talk about these things as if they're sort of optional or discretionary for yuppies in yoga camp, like focusing on gratitude and what a self-indulgent thing. But if you really think about it, the harder a person's life and the less they're supported from the outside, the more important it is to look for those opportunities to uh, develop and use skillfully inner resources of various kinds. So, with that said, I'm going to focus here on four key resources. One is the general skill of cultivation, of learning, how to actually develop uh, various beneficial qualities of mind and heart. That's itself an inner resource. And then we're going to apply that general purpose inner resource to um, three fundamental inner resources, kind of as umbrella terms a bit, of calm, contentment, and confidence, which, as you'll see, relates to our three most fundamental overarching needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection. Thus, whoops, here we go. This is the pointer button. Anyway, thus, safety, calm for safety, contentment for satisfaction, confidence for connection, loosely related, as we'll see, to the three-stage evolution of the brain. I'll get to that in a bit. But So these are, this is kind of our framework for today. All right? That's sort of what I'm doing here. All right? So, cultivating. Cultivating is okay. It's monastically approved. As you can see from this promo from years ago about, I love the title, Cultivating Inner Strengths, because that's very much our focus here, uh, from the monastics. In other words, there's a place for choiceless awareness, for simply mindfully witnessing the stream of consciousness rolling by. Great. 
Really, really important. But in my view, that stance uh, and method has become overvalued and uh, in a kind of restricted and sometimes even dogmatic way. And it's important to appreciate that even in a tradition such as Buddhism, which values profoundly the capacity to just simply remain choicelessly, non-interventionally aware of what's rolling on by, even in that tradition, there's an appreciation for the importance of cultivation, of development. I love this quotation uh, from the Dhammapada. Uh, To me, it just says so much, and it's so hopeful, actually, because it's only drop by drop, right? Think not lightly of good, saying, it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. And that psychological process of filling ourselves with good is mirrored by or related to an underlying physical process, as we will see in the body, primarily in the nervous system, especially in the brain, uh, that Uh, psychological process of taking in beneficial experiences uh, in a way that actually makes a difference over time, that uh, psychological sense of a difference being made maps to actual physical differences, physical changes underlying in the nervous system. Uh, By the way, these slides will be available to you if you want them. And um, we've chosen not to do handouts, partly because the printing costs and so forth, but also because it tends to draw people in to a piece of paper, kind of away from their experience. But if you give me your name and email address, which I won't share with anybody, uh, except people who work for me, uh, uh, I'll send you a full-color PDF of the slides, and then you can do whatever you want with those. You can use them yourselves, you can adapt them, share them with others, whatever you want. But I need your name and email address. And if you're already on my uh, distribution list for my propaganda, whatever, uh, don't worry, you won't start getting two things, but it helps us to know who wants the material from this particular workshop. And uh, by the detail, unless you say just slides, which is okay, unless you say just slides, if you're not already subscribed to my free weekly newsletter, Just One Thing, 135,000 people get it, yay. Um, if you're, I'll subscribe you to it. And of course, you can unsubscribe anytime. Okay, that's kind of the deal with the slides. So this will, you'll, you'll have access to this stuff if you want. All right, great. All right, so the question then becomes, how do we do it? How do we fill ourselves up drop by drop? You know, moment by moment, experience by experience, day by day, synapse by synapse. How do we actually do it? So, most of the inner resources we have, grit, gratitude, confidence, calm, contentment, commitment to justice, skillfulness with other people, the majority of our inner resources are acquired. To some extent, roughly about a third of the variation in psychological attributes, including inner resources, is grounded in our DNA. All right, that's innate. But the rest of it is acquired based on uh, events in our lives or conditions and circumstances in our lives and especially what we do with them. So to me, that's both very hopeful. Yay, there's a lot of opportunity here. um, And also it goes to responsibility. 
responsibility to do what we can to create conditions out in the world that are conducive to human welfare and responsibility for doing what we can ourselves to develop them through social, emotional, motivational learning broadly defined along the way. This means, of course, changing the brain. Changing the brain for the better. So the practical question, of course, becomes how do you get those green balls? Whoops. That's frozen. Jesse, help. There we go. Good. So how do you get those green balls into the brain? All right, now this is, this is metaphorical. There's, don't worry about it. Okay, nobody's going to pop your skull open and put them in. Although if you look at that brain, whoa, ew, three pounds of rotten tissue. It looks like cauliflower. That's kind of rotten, right? And yet, what an extraordinary organ. That's the result of 600 million years, actually, of evolution of the nervous system, grounded in more than three billion years of life's evolution even before that. All right, so... The fundamental process of cultivation, broadly defined, learning, proceeds in two stages. We must first experience whatever we want to grow. If we want to develop more patience, we must experience patience or related factors. If we want to be more mindful, if we want to be happier, if we want to be more committed to exercise or sobriety, We must experience that state of being, that state of mind initially, which maps to having a particular pattern of neural activation. And then, in the necessary second stage of learning, that momentary pattern of activity must leave lasting physical changes behind. Otherwise, by definition, no lasting gain, no learning. The experience might be momentarily pleasant, but by definition, if it doesn't leave a lasting physical trace behind in the body, especially in the nervous system, there's no development. There's no learning curve. There's no growth. There's no durable, beneficial change. There are different terms that are used for these stages. Neurologically, there's the distinction between encoding the initial pattern of activation and then gradual consolidation in neural networks in the brain in terms of lasting change. I use the language partly because I'm a total geek something. Um, Activation installation, uh, that may seem way too, I don't know, physical or computerish. Feel free to use different terms. But there's this fundamental distinction. Or simply put, the movement from state to trait. That's the fundamental process. It's also summarized in this kind of increasingly well-known saying from the work of the Canadian psychologist Donald Hebb, neurons that fire together, wire together. Activation, installation. State to trait. The mechanisms of what's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity are increasingly understood. No worries, there will be no midterm. There's going to be no test on this stuff. Uh, You don't need to remember all this. I'm not going to go through each one of these mechanisms. There are others in addition to what's listed here. But these are some primary mechanisms whereby the experiences of an animal include with a nervous system. The experiences of an animal with a nervous system, including a big complicated animal like us with the most complex nervous system pretty much of all, um, 
whereby the experiences of the, of the animal uh, lead to lasting changes. So, for example, existing connections between neurons, and there are several hundred trillion of them inside the brain. Quick uh, primer here, so brain, right? 1.1 trillion cells in there. Whoa. About 10% of which, 100 billion or so, are neurons. There are as many neurons in our head as stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Typical neuron makes several thousand connections with other neurons, giving us several hundred trillion little microprocessors, all sparkling and twinkling away. Uh, Sherrington uh, had a term, the enchanted loom, continually weaving the fabric of experience, the fabric of consciousness. Uh, neurons typically fire five to 50 times a second. They're you know, continually active. Not all that firing is meaningful, uh, but a lot of it is. A lot of it is informative. And large coalitions of neurons, millions of them, can fire synchronously many, many times a second. Uh, even though the brain is only 2 to 3% of body weight, it uses roughly 20 to 25% of the oxygen and glucose circulating in our blood. It's like the refrigerator. It's always on. Actually, technically, uh, the brain is often more metabolically active while we're sleeping than even while we're awake. Um, So that's the brain. And so in all that, you've got a lot of stuff going on. Uh, uh, as we're having experiences, a, um, existing synapses become, can become more or less sensitized. New connections can form between neurons. Blood can be brought increasingly to busy parts of the brain. There can be changes in the expression of genes deep down inside the nuclei of individual neurons, epigenetic processes, and through a variety of other means, kind of summarized and listed here, major mechanisms, we learn, we change, we grow, we develop from our experiences for better or worse. Focusing on the better side of that, we become more compassionate or grateful or resilient by having experiences of that which must become internalized in some fundamental way. And that second stage of learning, that second stage of development is, uh, in my view, the forgotten stepchild. Very often in clinical psychology, coaching, human resources training, compassion training, mindfulness training, and self-compassion training. Just because we're having experiences doesn't mean we're learning a darn thing. Think hauntingly, for me at least, humbling and haunting, to reflect on uh, what, how small the fraction is of our beneficial thoughts or feelings or sensations or intentions, our experiences, how small a fraction of them leave any kind of durable value behind. It's fairly straightforward and easy to activate to have some kind of useful thought, sensation, emotion, intention, etc. It's not so easy to help that experience leave a lasting trace behind. Uh, that's the installation phase of learning, which I'm going to talk about how to do it in a moment. Uh, but uh, to me, it's a really great opportunity because it's the stage of learning that we routinely, me included, don't tend to focus on. We kind of throw mud on the walls of the brain and hope that some of it sticks. Some of it does, especially if it's painful. 
If it's negative, if it's anxious, if it's irritating, if it's uncomfortable, if it's lonely, if it's hurtful, if it's shameful, if we feel inadequate, that stuff tends to stick. But most of the beneficial experiences we're having in the flow of the day, authentic ones, natural ones, typically mild, typically fairly brief, and still very real, moments of friendly connection with others, a sense of accomplishing one thing after another, looking out, seeing something beautiful, uh, feeling a sense of relief, reassurance, I finally got a parking place, you know, I finally made it to the workshop, whatever it might be. You know, we're having those experiences, but they tend to wash through the brain like water through a sieve, while our painful, negative, stressful, hurtful experiences are registered. Because historically, uh, those are the ones that most uh, were relevant in terms of urgency and impact for survival. Okay. So if you think about it, as we go through life, um, can't do anything about the past. The present itself is kind of what it is. It's congealed, it's actual, it's here. The key question is, do we learn or develop from here? So if you imagine schematically four kinds of lives over the course of a minute, an hour, a workshop, a day, a year, a life. Think of the y-axis here as whatever you might want to develop, including happiness or more love or more feeling of being loved or more sense of worth or more capability. That's the y-axis there, mental resources of various kinds. Some people go downhill, right? They seem less wise less happy, less loving, less resilient at the end of the day or the year or the life than when they began. Another life is relatively flat. No decline, but no gain. No improvement in any particular mental resource or global well-being altogether. Then we have a third schematic life, linear growth. Gradual learning, gradual development, gradual cultivation, gradual gain along the way. That's good. And then we have the fourth illustrative life, curvilinear, exponential growth. This is someone who's learning how to learn along the way. They're getting better at getting better along the way, including developing things inside themselves that they can offer to other people. So I want to focus with you here on the third and fourth curves, the third and fourth illustrative schematic lives. The practical question then becomes, what can we do inside ourselves to maximize our gain, our development, the durable residues left behind that are beneficial from the experiences we're having? What can we actually do? I think this is an incredibly important question because the inner resource of learning, broadly defined, of cultivation, is the strength that grows the other strengths. It's the one we draw upon to develop everything else. So when we know more how to steepen our gain rate, our development rate, our cultivation rate from experiences we're having, then we can apply that general purpose skill to whatever we want to develop inside ourselves. That to me is pretty great. So I thought we could do an experiential practice about this and then talk a bit about it and have a break. All right? So I want to do this experientially and then I'll talk about what's happening inside your brain neurologically. Uh, If you know my... How many of you uh, have never had a workshop with me? 
I'm so happy you're here. Thank you. You know what I mean? So I hope you'll come back for another one someday. But anyway, that's really good. Okay, so it's really great. So it's, it's great. So for those of you that aren't all familiar with my stuff, um, I'll get into some of the detail of this fundamental framework I use for the neuropsychology of development, of learning, and so forth. And you'll see it implicit in what I'm about to do with you experientially. Okay. So let's do this kind of briefly in three steps. All right? And then we can kind of talk about it. So basically, you're going to try to do something with your mind, which means doing something with your brain, which means doing something with your body altogether. And also, you're going to be aware of what's happening inside yourself. Kind of three experiments. We're going to run three experiments and then talk about the results. Okay? All right. Two basic ways to have a beneficial experience in the first place. That's the first necessary stage of learning. Mostly. We mostly learn from experiences that we're conscious of. There is a little bit of unconscious learning, but most learning proceeds uh, through the field of awareness in the first place. All right. So two ways to have a beneficial experience. Usually we're just already having it. We notice something useful. It's also okay to self-generate a beneficial experience, like self-generating compassion or self-generating a sense of fortitude to deal with some challenge. All right. Both are good, legitimate ways to have a useful experience. I'm going to start with noticing something useful already. All right? Here we go. Notice something kind of already present in awareness, maybe in the background of awareness that you want to move to the foreground that's useful for you could be the natural inherent sense of relaxation as you exhale and the heart rate naturally slows a little bit. Maybe there could be a background sense of kind of being with others in a way that feels okay. Maybe there's a sense of well-being in the body. Maybe your maybe your sense of your intellect working, chugging along here, you know, not perfectly but doing okay. Whatever it might be. See if you can notice something beneficial you're already experiencing. And then sustain mindful awareness of it. Foreground this beneficial experience on the stage of awareness and sustain a focus on it. Allow this beneficial experience to be big in your mind. a sense of this experience sinking in somehow, maybe spreading inside your body, establishing itself in your being. You might have a sense of you sinking into this experience. You're absorbing it. 
and becoming absorbed into it. Okay, that was the first one. Most of the time that we, quote-unquote, as I put it, take in the good, it's over the course of a breath or two or three. It's fairly quick. Uh, We can, of course, marinate in these beneficial experiences for longer periods, keep those neurons firing together for longer periods to really help it sink in. But most of the time, it's fairly brief which is fine because the brain is so quick. All right, let's try it again. Now we're going to create the uh, state of being, the beneficial experience, and then internalize it. So let's start with creating an experience of gratitude or gladness. We'll come back to this experience of gratitude a little later today, but just right now, kind of briefly, bringing to mind some of the many things you're thankful for. And as you do this, helping yourself start to have a feeling of gratitude. Not just an intellectual knowing of things that have been given to you, that you've received, but more and more of a feeling of gratitude. And then as you start having, activating this experience, focusing more and more on on installing it by, for example, really feeling gratitude in your body. There might be a kind of a warm feeling or a letting go. be a happiness. Other thoughts naturally may come up. Uh, Thoughts about perhaps what you're missing rather than what you've received. That's natural. Just bring attention back though. Keep sustaining a focus on the experience of gratitude. One way to heighten the internalization of an experience is to be aware of how it's personally relevant, salient. So you might think to yourself a bit, why is it personally important for you to feel gratitude? Maybe experience gratitude more often. 
How might that be helpful to you? a sense of giving yourself over to gratitude, budging, to really receive, even through a kind of shift, a feeling of becoming more grateful. Okay, that was the second experiment. And then the third to finish. See what it's like to create an experience of compassion or kindness, generally. A warm-heartedness, a caringness. Calling up you know, beings that you care about, uh, friends, children, pets, uh, groups of people. Help yourself have an experience of compassion or related feelings of kindness. As you begin to have that experience, we can move into internalizing it. Stay with it. One way to strengthen the internalization of experiences is through action, including the action of facial expressions, such as a lovingness in your face, or the action of putting a hand on your heart or a hand on your cheek, whatever you like.
another way to increase the consolidation of experiences and neural networks is to focus on what's rewarding about them. What feels good? Or what is meaningful in feeling compassion, kindness, or love? What feels good about it? Okay, finishing up here. Um, Those are the experiments, and now in a moment, uh, if you like, we can talk about what happened there for you and address comments or questions in general, and then we'll then we'll slide into a break. So, um, if you would be willing to, it's helpful for everybody in the room uh, if you use the microphone, and we have two good. Mike runners who will run mics, as it were. Uh, so who has a comment or question so far? Or just briefly, how was that for you to do those little practices inside your mind? Question or comment? Great, right there. Thank you. I want to bring them. If you keep your hand up there, that's super. Thank you. Um, what I noticed, especially in the create uh, for the gratitude and compassion was when I said, what does it, when you asked, what does it do for you? Then I realized that I can't be judging of them, and I'm more mm-hmm. loving towards them, and I can't be judging of me, and it brings love to me. Ah, that's great. Thank you. Yeah. And to be clear, I will offer different prompts, different ways to have a beneficial experience in the first place, and then internalize it. That's the least important thing today. The most important thing is to, for yourself, learn how to help yourself receive beneficial experiences into yourself so that they stick to your kind of ribs, as it were, in ways that are lasting for you. Okay, great. All right, in the back there, all the way in the back, uh, dark sleeve, that's what I can see. There we are. Great. Hi, I have a question. Yeah. Um, How do you cultivate forgiveness? And Uh, does that come from compassion? Or is that a different process? Okay, great. So how does one cultivate forgiveness? Um, I'll speak to that just kind of briefly because I'm going to focus more generally here on the how of cultivation. So very briefly, I think of forgiveness in two levels. And I write about this in my book, Resilient. So... And I did a good job on this topic. <laughs> so, and you, you really, don't tell Spirit Rock this, but you can just flick to that section. There's an index, and then don't buy the book if you don't want to. Okay. So I think of forgiveness in two levels. There's uh, uh, kind of like classic full pardon forgiveness, where we just wipe the slate clean, you know, just full pardon, great. But then I think there's a, if you could say a lesser kind of forgiveness that's still real, in which we still um, 
think that justice should be served. We still may not want to have anything to do with that person ever again. But uh, our reactions to them no longer invade the mind and remain. We've moved to a place of kind of ease where we lay it down. The the Buddha has a line, um, getting angry at others is like throwing hot coals with bare hands. Both people are burned. Or I think about the saying, resentment is like taking poison and waiting for others to die. So this, um, I call it disentangled forgiveness, distinct from full pardon forgiveness. It's kind of a lower bar. So for me, it's actually helpful to think about both of those. And then the question is how to do it. There's a lot in the how. Um, I think foundational for forgiveness is first and foremost a kind of mindful self-awareness of how wronged you really were and not moving too quickly into forgiveness before a genuine accounting of what actually happened and the morality involved in it and the impact of it on oneself or perhaps on other people. Like That's really foundational to tell the truth about what happened, first and foremost to oneself, sometimes to others who hopefully are allies and are supportive, sometimes to the actual person themselves. Um, And so I think that's really foundational to take that step. And then on the basis of that, establish the intention to forgive, you know, and including the recognition of how it's a burden on me to hold a grudge or grievance about you. And it's actually kind to oneself to lay down that stone uh, about that other person. It helps to realize that I can still hold the view of what was really wrong about what they did, and I can still take action to protect myself and others from them in the future. I can pursue justice, perhaps, if nothing else. I can name what really occurred. That can all happen alongside the movement into a kind of inner freedom and ease in which I'm not invaded by or preoccupied with what happened. When I think about it, my needle may still move, okay? But it, it, I don't brood over it when we're moving into forgiveness, right? Um, and uh, so that intention is really useful. And then to finish, it can help to move into different practices of various kinds, um, including compassion for the other person, realizing that you kind of ran, you, you know, that doesn't mean letting them off the hook morally, but that often what they did arose from their own suffering or it arose due to many, many causes and conditions in their life. An awareness of that can be really useful. Um, Certainly compassion for oneself, really, really fundamental. Um, And then maybe just to finish here, uh, a deliberate uh, kind of letting go. Sometimes we act that out by writing angry letters we never send, or maybe we do send, you know, uh, just letting it go, moving on. Uh, sometimes there's a ritual that it can help, you know, where we do different things um, and then just let it go. Uh, I write more about this in some detail. And then it helps, so those are ways of generating that state of being, okay? Now we're in the first stage of learning. And then in the second stage, we can allow and help that sense of forgiveness to really land inside ourselves. The sense of, you know, disentangling ourselves. And then, if it's appropriate, if we really can move to it, just kind of a full pardon. Um, Okay. Hopefully that was useful. All right. A couple more people, then we'll move into a break right there. There you go. Thanks. Yes. 
uh, <clears throat> the experience of the enrichment and the absorbing of it. Um, I felt the, uh, with the feeling of compassion and what was the first one? Something beneficial, gratitude. Yeah. Uh, that it enlarged, mm. you know, through the room. Yeah. And then uh, absorbing it, which I assume is, a it felt physical. Yeah. In the, in, the, in the head, the chest, the heart. And uh, the next, I actually have a question uh, for the aging brain. Yeah, I have one myself. <laughs> <laughs> the ability to develop these uh, neural networks. Mm -hmm. um, what's the research on that? Yeah. Um, great. So first of all, good noticing, good mindfulness of the, the, of the distinctions. And in a way we're talking about becoming skillful with our own mind stream. Right? And being aware of the differences between uh, feeling something, let's say, in the body, or getting a sense of what's rewarding about it, or noticing how our mind wanders away from what we want to focus on and then what's involved in bringing it back. Those are all useful skills to develop. We become, in a way, more competent at um, helping ourselves grow into more and more of who we want to be for the sake of others as well as for our own sake. That's good. So, aging brain. Um, let's see. On the one hand, certain forms of plasticity uh, decrease over, over time. Uh, we tend to have more and more kind of the neurons that we've got, the circuits that we've got. On the other hand, as we age, neuroplasticity continues throughout the lifespan. It's actually kind of haunting to appreciate the fact that even after we take our last breath and the heart stops beating, metabolic activity is still continuing in the brain for many, many, many minutes afterward. Uh, synapses are firing, uh, neurons are firing, connections are growing or changing. Even as the lights slowly go out, in the mansion of the mind and the brain, learning, in a fundamental sense, can keep on going. I find that quite profound. Um, so um, as we age, uh, we still have the capacity to learn and grow and develop. Um, there are things that can help us do that, like physical activity is very promotive of lifelong learning, including what's called neurogenesis, the birth of new baby neurons. Um, Stress, and uh, uh, including the stress of irritation and, and negative emotions, isn't that isn't good for lifelong learning. So it's one thing to feel the feelings; it's another thing to brood on them, to have them invade the mind and remain. And then I would say another thing that we can do to help ourselves continue uh, to learn from our experiences as we age is to retain a quality of playfulness. Because one of the interesting things is that playfulness, including a spirit of discovery or not knowing, beginner's mind, you know, Zen mind, beginner's mind, that quality of playfulness or delight or surprise both increases dopamine activity in the brain because when we're surprised or delighted or expectations are not fulfilled through novelty, uh, that increases dopamine activity, which promotes the forming, the, the learning from the experiences we're having, 
Also, playfulness releases what are called neurotrophic factors that promote uh, uh, new uh, neuronal activity, including new connections between neurons. And I think oftentimes as we age, people can become kind of stodgy, stuck in their ruts, uh, and they lose that spirit of discovery. That's one reason why grandchildren are great, because you suddenly start relearning what the world looks like a foot and a half off the floor. You know, uh, So preserving that kind of playfulness, a spirit of playfulness, including uh, in our relationship with our own mind stream, is a really useful thing that preserves you know, neuroplasticity as we age. Neuroplastic change as we age. Okay. I want to move to a break in a second, so I want to just kind of mention some quick material here, and then we'll slide into a break, and then I'm happy to talk with you during the break, okay? So what we did experientially maps to a model that I use as the fundamental framework, the essential neuropsychology of learning and growth, which I uh, summarize in this framework that I use the acronym HEAL for, of having beneficial experiences in the first place, usually because they're already happening and we want to harvest the value from them. And then in terms of the second necessary stage of development or learning, the installation phase or the consolidation phase, the movement into a trait from states, I think of two distinct, meaningfully distinct aspects of that, enriching, in which we help the experience be big, and absorbing, in which we sensitize the memory-making machinery of the brain to the experience that we're having. I go into a lot of detail about this in various ways, including my 16-minute TEDx talk. So that's a very short way to get access to this. The book Hardwiring Happiness gets into it. Um, The Resilient book gets into it. I'm moving through a lot of material here. But these are two meaningfully uh, distinct ways to help ourselves grow from the experiences we're having, to enrich them, help them be big, and to absorb them, to receive them into ourselves. And then optionally, if we want, we can choose to link the beneficial, quote-unquote, positive experience we're having to some matched negative material so that the positive experience gradually associates to, soothes, contextualizes, and even perhaps replaces that negative material. That's the fundamental model. So we have having a beneficial experience in the first place, have that green ball arrive, then moving into installation, we pop the brain open in a metaphorical sense, and we enrich the experience in a variety of ways. We also absorb it into ourselves, and it has very much, as you eloquently described, a sense of it coming in and spreading and kind of giving over to it. And then if we want, and it's not necessary, um, we can link that negative material, uh, that positive material, to something negative. That's the essential process, which happily really just boils down to have it, enjoy it. Have the useful experience, and then stay with it, come into an intimacy with it, let yourself um, you know, gain from it. There are many benefits to doing this practice, growing particular resources inside, as well as implicit benefits built into this approach of being for yourself and treating yourself like you matter and being kind to yourself. It's quite plausible that over time, through repetition, 
taking in the good again and again and again can sensitize the brain to beneficial experiences. So it shifts from the its default setting of Velcro for bad experiences, Teflon for good ones, to becoming increasingly the brain like Velcro for beneficial experiences. So they the brain becomes more efficient and effective at the internalization of beneficial experiences. And more and more, those negative experiences are known. They occur. We're not fighting them. We're not denying them. We're not uh, ignoring them. But more and more, they don't penetrate us and remain. They kind of slide off us like you know, water off a duck's back or oil off a Teflon. One of the great results of all this is that as we change, the world seems to change around us in wonderful positive cycles. And as Lao Tzu put it a long time ago, if you uh, keep a green bough in your heart, a singing bird will come. So that's cultivation. I think strength of strengths. We did it. Good job. Let's take a break. Are you okay? 20 minute break? or So... What time is it now? What is that? 40, 20? Yeah, come on. Hey, 23 minutes. All right. Come back at at 12 o'clock. All right, see you then.
I'm doing it. <laughs> I will but, tell you that yeah. I came because of the case. Um,
changes it and great grace studies they've done, like they've separated twins, what happens So when I first saw him three years ago, and I did the same thing I did this week, which is I just Googled Roger Lee. I was like, oh, I should go see him. like the chemistry part of the brain. Yeah. Like, oh, I like understanding how this muscle works. Like when I lift weights, That yes. I hadn't heard because I tend to That's a habit. So funny. I go, are you on Windows Vista? And they're like, well, no. And I go, why aren't you on Windows Vista? And they go, created it.
Absolutely. It's an online. online. It's an online. online. Thanks, Susan. I'm Lucia. Lucia, nice to meet you. You're oh eating. Go for it. <laughs> I did my
Folks, uh, gray BMW license plate C Yogi, your car is on. And I brought all the cushions down for me. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All right, let's be let's let's keep going. All right. So I want to uh, explore a framework with you for um, developing resources in the larger framework of the Buddha's drive theory of suffering, so the Four Noble Truths. So I'm going to explain what I, what I mean here. All right? So you ready? Kinda, so this will be a little conceptual initially, and then we're going to use this as a framework uh, for identifying key resources to grow inside us to, in the service 
of a larger inquiry into the relationship between craving, broadly defined, and suffering, and an exploration of what are the causes of craving, and therefore the causes of its end. Kind of a big swing here. See what you think. All right. Craving and suffering. The four ennobling truths. And I want to draw your attention to the word ennobling because recent translation, recent scholarship suggests that one way to uh, think of the words in the ancient language 2,500 years ago, Pali, of the uh, surviving written record of the earliest teachings of the Buddha and his uh, contemporaries, his his close companions, what is commonly taken as the four noble truths could actually be understood as ennobling truths. In other words, it ennobles us to face suffering in ourselves and other people. It ennobles us to inquire into and understand in a bottom-up, embodied kind of way what are the causes of so much suffering in ourselves and other people. It's also ennobling to reflect on the possibility of defueling the underlying engine of craving and suffering, uh, to explore the possibility of relating to life uh, without disturbance or a sense of something missing without agitation. That's ennobling. And it's ennobling to engage a path of practice uh, that itself embodies the end of suffering and leads to the end of suffering. So the four ennobling truths, a a telling of the kind of the heart of the Buddhist uh, teaching. There is suffering. It's not the only thing in life, but there is a fair amount of suffering in ourselves and other people, very broadly defined, including subtle forms of stress, discontent, uneasiness, irritation, hurt, loneliness, Interestingly, new research has shown that loneliness, not the not pleasurable solitude, which introverts like me need a fair amount of, but uh, loneliness actually imposes as much burden on long-term health and longevity as cigarette smoking does. Think about that. Yeah, loneliness is the new smoking. And there are many, many... <laughs> There are many, many people who uh, you know, are living lives of quiet loneliness, uh, even sometimes in the midst of having 500 Facebook friends. So, suffering. Suffering arises. Suffering increases. The Buddha put forth as a hypothesis, his drive theory of suffering, as craving increases. The root of the word for craving in the language of early Buddhism is thirst. Craving is based, as I'll get to in a moment, on an experienced sense of a deficit or a disturbance in the meeting of a fundamental need. Craving. And there are different uh, examples of craving. It's a pretty intense word. Uh, Drivenness, um, resistance, uh, aversion, clinging, uh, including interpersonal clinging are different expressions of craving in subtle ways in everyday life. One of the, for me, most useful things to be mindful of are subtleties of drivenness or attachment to outcome or internal insistence, must, mustness that we bring to bear uh, with our experience or 
resisting, pushing away, suppressing, those are all expressions of craving. The Buddha's third hypothesis, or if you will, is that as craving decreases, so does suffering. Um, particularly the suffering that we add to the inevitable, unavoidable, physical and emotional pain of having a human body in this life. And then we have the fourth ennobling truth. There's actually a path of practice. We're not screwed. We're not dead in the water. (laughs) There's something we can do actually for ourselves and there's help we can offer to other people to shift out of. For me, the fundamental fulcrum of Buddhist practice is between the second and the third noble truths or the second and the third ennobling truths. There are things we can do that are real to reduce this engine of suffering in ourselves and other people and that is profoundly hopeful. All right. So, if craving causes suffering, what causes craving? It's striking to me as someone who's been pretty involved in Buddhist practice. I started meditating in 1974. It's a while ago. What a long, strange trip it's been. But anyway, (laughs) quoting the Grateful Dead. um, You know, there's so little attention to the Buddha's actual teachings that are very psychological. There's nothing metaphysical, new age up here. It's very psychological. It's very in the flesh because it's bodies that crave. It's animals that evolved to have drives of various kinds to uh, draw upon, to survive and live to see the sunrise and pass on genes that pass on genes. So even though it's really a fundamental topic, it's very interesting how little attention um, the noble truths get, especially the second and third. Uh, If we suffer because we crave, uh, why do we crave? And what can we do about it? Well, 2,500 years, especially the last 100 or two, of science has something to say about this. Because craving is something that is a natural biological condition or state. Craving happens in bodies. It is bodies that crave, animal bodies that are vulnerable and frail and want to live and want to help others live as well. Craving arises in relationship to something, in relationship to needs. Craving is grounded in needs. We crave to meet our needs, or we crave, broadly defined again, very broadly defined, when something is amiss in terms of our needs. If we feel like our needs are met, there's no biological basis for craving. There's no actual basis. There may still be habits of craving, but the actual basis for craving doesn't exist when there is a full sense of needs being met. Wow. That has a lot of implications. So as a framework then, what do we need? There are different models of needs. Maslow has his needs hierarchy. Other people have needs. Most of those needs frameworks, I think, settle into three major groups. And this is a framework I've developed, and it's consistent with frameworks from other people. Uh, Basically, three overarching needs. They don't include everything. Certain needs are a blend. By the way, needs and wants kind of blur together, so I'm not going to try to disentangle them here. Partly out of respect, because what is one person's want is another person's need. And, you know, so that said, we need to be safe. And animals, lizards, mice, and monkeys need to be safe as well. 
We need to be satisfied, broadly defined. We need to be fed. We need certain experiences of pleasure. We need to achieve certain goals to accomplish certain things. And we need to be connected. Now, the ways in which a tiny, tiny little worm with 302 neurons uh, pursues its needs for connection through mating with other little tiny worms is really different from the ways that, let's say, a high school senior, you know, getting ready for the prom, you know, meets their needs for connection. Those are different, and yet the worm uses oxytocin in its reproductive activities, much as oxytocin is a major neurotransmitter system and hormonal system when it's operating outside of the nervous system. Or, yeah, um, That high school student meets their needs is, of course, quite different, and yet the fundamental need as an umbrella term is still connection, at least broadly defined. Okay, three fundamental needs. We meet those needs, broadly defined, through three overarching systems that are motivational and regulatory. Uh, We, as it were, achieve safety through avoiding harms, broadly defined. We achieve satisfaction through approaching rewards, broadly defined. And we meet our needs for connection through attaching, broadly defined, to other people. So we have familiar ways of thinking about neuropsychology here. We have like the threat response system under the heading of avoiding, goal pursuit system under the heading of, a, of approaching, uh, yep. and the social engagement system broadly defined under the heading of attaching. As a detail, if, uh, if you have any background in sort of Buddhist psychology, um, there are uh, what are described as the feeling tones of experience, or in modern parlance, the hedonic tones of experience, as unpleasant, pleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Additionally, I think there's a fourth major kind of hedonic tone, or feeling tone, uh, in Pali, the Vedna, the sense of things being relational. And I want to call out this third system here, this connection system, the attaching system, which tends to activate, much as the others do, uh, in response to a internal hedonic tone of experience as relational. I want to call it out because I think it's true. I think they're really... We are profoundly social. There is a meaningfully distinct third fundamental system. It's regulatory and motivational. That's not just the avoidance of pain and the pursuit of pleasure. And I want to call it out because I think it's calling it out as kind of a corrective to the predominantly sort of heady and male uh, construction of you know Buddhist practice as well as Western philosophy and psychology. I think we're extremely relational. Okay? So this is my framework here. Frameworks are not true or not true. They're useful or not useful. So this is the framework. This is the roadmap I'm going to use here. The meeting of our three fundamental needs, these three overarching systems, avoiding, approaching, and attaching, are loosely related to the three-stage evolution of the brain. The more or less reptilian, as well as crab and worm, uh, you know, brainstem, sitting on top of which, loosely defined, is the mammalian subcortex, sitting on top of which is the uh, more uh, recent primate and especially human neocortex. Right? The 
reptilian brainstem, and I'm using these terms in kind of a fuzzy way, uh, is very good at achieving that arguably most fundamental need of all for safety, to live to see the sunrise. Eat lunch today, don't be lunch today. Right? <laughs> Rule one in the what. Um, then, laid on top of that, we have the evolution in the last couple hundred million years of the mammalian uh, subcortex that's very good at pursuing goals because mammals are warm-blooded. They can hunt at night. They can also sustain pursuit. And with the development of more sophisticated emotions grounded in the subcortical layers of the brain, uh, mammals are more able to uh, kind of uh, pursue their goals. And then laid on top of that, we have the neocortex. The brain has tripled in volume in the last several million years, coincident with the uh, development of our particular species, uh, mainly evolving, or until very, very recently, just the last 10,000 years or so, evolving in small bands. The natural social unit for human beings is a band of about 50 people, roughly 30 adults. Well... We have 300 people in this room. That's 10 bands. It's radical to think about the reality that this is a really abnormal setting for us as a species. We adapt to it because we're very adaptable creatures. But it's really quite amazing to really think about that the natural social unit has only 30 or so adults in it. Uh, loosely related with other groups, often other groups seen as enemies, very dangerous adversaries. So anyway, that's the larger context of evolution. All right, so that's my framework here so far. What happens when we don't feel our needs are met? Whoops, here we go. The second noble truth. When needs don't feel sufficiently met, naturally we move into the stress response. Fight, flight, freeze. One kind or another. And to put it kind of loosely terms others have used and I use too, uh, we have here the reactive mode or the, re- the reactive mode of managing our needs. So if we don't feel safe enough, if we feel disturbed by a sense of threat, the avoiding system shifts into its reactive mode, its stress response mode, fight or flight or freeze, and the mind is colored in a broad sense with fear. The term the Buddha used, as best we know, it's kind of come down to us, is currently translated loosely as hatred. I think hatred is a pretty narrow term. I think fear is a nice, useful, overarching umbrella term. We have similar things that happen in the other two systems when we're invaded by a sense of disturbance or deficit in the meeting of our needs for satisfaction. Then the mind is colored with a sense of frustration. The traditional term here more is greed. Again, it seems pretty narrow to me, so I use frustration as an overarching umbrella for what the mind is colored by. And then last, if we feel disconnected, uh, the attaching system goes into the red zone, goes into the reactive mode, and the mind is colored broadly with a sense of heartache or hurt or related feelings like loneliness or resentment. Um, that's the brain roughly on the second noble truth. It's a normal state of being. It's natural. It's, 
adaptive, it's useful, and maybe even arguably it's necessary. If you've got to run into your house that's starting to burn to get your kid's teddy bear and the discs for your dissertation when you're getting a PhD, I've been through that myself, all right, maybe there's a place for firing up into the red zone. You've got to do what it takes, okay? But with the red zone come a lot of costs. There's the accumulation of what's called allostatic load when we repeatedly move into the stress response. And in modern lives today, even if most people at least are not exposed to threats like attacks from saber-toothed tigers, still many people today experience chronic mild to moderate activation of the stress response system both the sympathetic nervous system aspect of it and related hormones like adrenaline and cortisol. And also people tend to experience a lot today overactivation of the dopamine system. People get addicted to that spike, spike, drip, drip, drip. The next shiny object, uh, social media uh, and consumerism and otherwise. That's momentarily okay. I mean, we're adaptable or tough critters, but chronically we begin to accumulate allostatic load that wears down our long-term health and well-being and sensitizes us to drop into conflicts with others. That's the second noble truth right here. The good news is that when there's an internalized experience in the core that there's a sufficiency of needs met, doesn't have to be perfect. Some of the happiest people in the world are the poorest ones, have many, as many have observed. But when there's, which is, by the way, not a justification for keeping people in poverty, obviously. But that said, the crux of the matter is, what do we experience inside? What do we experience inside? Uh, that's the key. And when we experience inside that there's an enoughness of a fullness or a balance in terms of needs being met, then the brain and the body defaults to its resting state. Its sustainable, homeostatic state, I call it the responsive mode, the green zone, in which uh, the body calms down, it repairs itself from previous bursts of stressful activity, it conserves resources, it's still managing things. It's still managing threat. It's still avoiding harm. You know, it's still figuring out ways to pursue its goals. It's still relating to others. It's still feeling connected. But without the cost of um, the stressful activation of the body and without the psychological cost of being invaded, haunted by uh, feelings of fear, broadly defined, or frustration, or hurt and heartache. That's the uh, brain, if you will, and the body fundamentally in the zone of the third noble truth in which craving and the underlying basis for craving has diminished. That's the fundamental framework here. So the question then becomes, how do we increase the causes and conditions increasingly hardwired into ourselves so that we can take them with us wherever we go that enable us to stay in the green zone, stay settled in the core of our being, in the responsive mode, as we face increasingly large challenges. 
to quote Upandita, a Buddhist teacher no longer alive, the purpose of practice is to expand the range of experiences in which we are free. As I said earlier, it's easy to be in the green zone when you're lying there in the hammock and they're brushing your hair and you know giving you lots of praise and telling you everything's fine, that's easy. But how do we retain this fundamental sense of well-being in the core of our being, even as we're dealing with with you know challenges around us? How do we how do we build out that resilient, unshakable core? That's what I want to explore with you here. All right. So um, this slide summarizes basically what I just said. In the back of their minds, you know, many, many people commonly experience a background sense of something missing, something wrong. I think of it as kind of chronic inner homelessness, you know, driven away from our home base. The resting state is our home base. That's what really characterizes dynamic systems, their resting state. The resting state is the green zone of sustainable well-being. And the opportunity is to repeatedly internalize authentic experiences of needs sufficiently met in the moment. Not necessarily perfectly met, but an enoughness of the meeting of needs through repeatedly internalizing those experiences through positive neuroplasticity, through the installation, the internalization phase of learning, gradually we build up a core of the felt sense of needs met so that increasingly we meet the next challenge to our needs feeling already full, already balanced, already at ease on the basis of which we can meet that challenge. We're going to meet challenges to our needs. The question is, on the basis of what? Do we feel a scarcity inside? A disturbance inside? A white knuckling? A fragility inside? As we meet our needs? Or do we feel a sense of strength inside? A sense of confidence inside? A sense of well-being in the core of our being, even as we meet things and deal with things that could be upsetting? That's the fundamental question. And the path into that biologically, neuropsychologically, is the repeated internalization of the experience of needs met and the repeated internalization of experiences of resources for meeting needs so we can actually meet them without being overwhelmed by them. Then we feel already happy, strong, at ease, and loving in our core as we move forward through life. That's the opportunity. Any quick question or comment about this? And then I want to do a practice with you about self-compassion. So, yeah, question or comment so far? And if you keep your hand up, then Dan can find you or can get a microphone to you. If you put your hand up, where were you? Right there? Yeah. Here's the mic. I have a question about this craving. Yeah. if we are trying to internalize these experiences of needs by feeling the fullness and balance, but actually we don't have it, yeah. is, does that mean we're trying to fool our, fool our brain? Yeah, great question. Just like say we want to have something, but we don't have it. But let's just try to feel like we already yeah. have it. That's right. That's great. It's a key question. 
isn't it? And then related to that, does internalizing these experiences make us crave more? And is this just a fancy way of kind of, you know, uh, uh, is this just a fancier way of being attached to pleasure? These are very good related questions. Exactly right. So, um, first point, if we work backwards, we say, okay, what would we like to grow inside ourselves? We'd like to grow strengths of various kinds, resources, including the strengths that help us meet our goals and get what we need. Maybe we're looking for love appropriately. We're looking for a mate, let's say. Or maybe we're wanting to be more successful at work or more skillful with raising our teenager. We want to grow those things inside ourselves. Very straightforward. How do you grow them? Guess what? You've got to experience them. You've got to internalize those experiences. So that's the fundamental way into it. So that takes us then into how can I experience what I want to develop and then how can I help it be useful to me? How can I help it leave lasting value behind? Very straightforward. So then the question becomes, how do we actually have those experiences? The most important way to have them is to notice them when they're already occurring. And in many small ways, they're very often typically already occurring or a part of a key resource is occurring. Second, I think it's appropriate to deliberately do little things to help ourselves have the experience in ways that feel authentic. So let's say that we want to help ourselves be more confident about um, asking for what we need in relationships. So we can do things like deliberately thinking about other people who have a healthy confidence about asking for what they need and imagining, what's it like to be them? How could I be a little bit more that way myself? Now I'm starting to help myself. You know, a key element of coping is to be able to self-generate useful states of mind, states of being, including the body sensations of it. What would it feel like to be that way? Oh, I'd lean more forward. Or I'd stay stay on target, stay on target. You know, I'd stay locked on to what I really want in this interaction rather than getting distracted by all this other stuff. Oh, that's what it would feel like. Okay? So now I'm having this experience, and then, bingo, as soon as that song's playing in the inner iPod, it doesn't matter what the source of it is. Oh. doesn't matter what the source of it is. Turn on the inner recorder and help that become more registered or, more, or be more established in ourselves, more stable. So to me, that's the way that into it. And in all that, if, it, if, it's not authentic, if it's not authentic, it doesn't work. It has to feel authentic. Now, a way to have an authentic experience is to imagine something. There's a place for that. But I think it's important to realize that we're imagining it. We're not, it's not based on objective reality. But still, if we imagine what it would be like to have a certain experience, at that point, the experience is occurring. Maybe in a watered-down way, but it's still happening inside us. And right there, it's a chance to take it in. And to me, that's actually really hopeful. We have to, I'm not talking about fake it till you make it. But I am talking about the hopefulness that we're not totally bound by our circumstances. We're not dead in the water. 
there are things we can do to help our brains activate certain states of being that would be useful to us. And rippling out, probably beneficial to other people as well. So to me, that's that's the fundamental framework here. And um, just to finish, I think it's helpful to realize that even if we can't have the whole pie of key experiences, we can usually have slices of the pie. Maybe we can't have the full experience of being loved by a soulmate, but we can have parts of that experience. Being cared about by others, being part of a group, being seen, being valued. Um, it's not the whole package, never trying to deny that fact, but it's still it's part of it. And I think it's important to not dismiss slices of the pie because they're not the whole pie, you know, as understandable as that might be. And then the last thing I'll say is what's interesting is that cultivation undoes craving. As we register our beneficial, wholesome experiences, we then carry them with us increasingly, so we search for them outside us less and less over time. It's interesting that when people stay thirsty, stay hungry, you know, the Dos Equis commercial of the most interesting man in the world, stay thirsty, my friends, right? Well, thirst is the translation of the original word for craving in early Buddhism, right? So when we actually take into ourselves the useful, wholesome, beneficial experiences we're having, we get less hungry for them, you know? And it's really interesting and it's poignant, even tragic, that the chasing, the seeking, the searching for uh, pleasures of various kinds um, gets in the way of the receiving of the pleasures that are already present in the moment. And it keeps us hungry. You know, the land of the hungry ghosts in terms of a hell realm in Tibetan Buddhism. All right. Okay, one more question and then we'll do a practice, comment, question. Okay. So um, I'm curious if you have any other suggestions in terms of cultivating this inner resource to, uh, in a sense, source our own um, satisfaction regarding trauma and the residual effects of chronic stress or trauma. Do you have any other perspective on that? I have a workshop full of perspective on that, but so, but I, yeah, it's a deep question. Okay, so and I'll <clears throat> respond to it pretty briefly. Um, let me turbocharge my synapses here. <laughs> Performance drug, coffee. <laughs> anyway, um, wow. Okay. Well, there's so much to say. Okay, so trauma leaves effects behind, right? And I think the way I would... So I want to offer a general point that I think is pretty useful. Um, so the question then becomes, how do we deal with those effects, Right? Part one, for me, as a roadmap, is to grow resources around the wound 
that don't yet address the wound directly. So that's right there. There's a distinction between strategy and tactics. Okay, strategically, it's really helpful to grow resources around the wound. And by the way, a trauma can be the overwhelming absence of the good, not just the overwhelming presence of the bad. Neglect of various kinds and neglect in relationship to the nature or the temperament or the needs of the person, including the child, perhaps a very young child, neglect can be traumatizing over time. And a lot of micro-traumas can add up to a macro-trauma. So I think it's helpful to appreciate both what you you might call um, a wound and a lack. You know, both can be traumatizing. And oftentimes they go together. All right. So, one, it's useful to appreciate we can grow resources around what happened, even if we're not dealing with the trauma itself. And often that's the safest thing to do first because resources are very direct. You can grow resources. Now, as a technical but important detail, it's helpful to grow resources that are matched to the nature of the trauma. So, um, you know, some trauma really loads on the safety system. I'm going to go back a few slides. Here we go. For example, something that's invasive or painful or produces helplessness, like being injured and then having to spend the next six weeks or six months of your life as a seven-year-old in a body cast. Helplessness, I think of something really uh, related to the safety system. Other traumas might have to do with shocking loss, the loss of, a, of an important uh, role in life or relationship uh, in terms of meeting our needs for satisfaction. Uh, a major tra- trauma in my grandmother's life was that she uh, was a, uh, lived in a wealthy family that lost everything in the Depression, and then her father jumped out the window, literally, uh, when she was probably five or six or seven in the 1920s. That's, that's a kind of double whammy where there's a loss of satisfaction and a loss of connection in terms of another person. So it's helpful to think about, and I talk about this a fair amount, especially in the book Hardwiring Happiness, about growing resources that are matched to the particular need. And I've got a slide a little bit later on in which I talk about some of that matching. So it's helpful as a roadmap to grow resources around the periphery of the traumatic material that are relevant to it. They don't have to be perfectly relevant, you know. Any kind of medicine, you know, if it's good medicine, there's good medicine, but it helps to have them be relevant, part one. Part two, to really clear the trauma ultimately, I think we need to engage, and I'm going to go back a few more slides, the linking step of practice in which we slowly but surely and there are people who are truly experts about this. We slowly but surely bring together resources and experiences of resources that touch the pain and then gradually connect with it and gradually touch, move more and more deeply into it and hopefully over time uh, fill up what was neglected and empty and gradually over time soothe and ease what was wounded. It can be a long, slow process. 
that it goes through many stages. But I think that's the fundamental process. I think linking um, done one way or another is necessary to really get fundamentally at the wound. Often linking is done best in relationship with a skillful other person, uh, whether it's informally talking with someone who's really wise and nurturing or more formally in counseling, psychotherapy, etc., um, perhaps in groups of other people. Uh, but I think that, for me, those are two separate things. There's the growing of resources around the wound or the, the, the lack, and then there's the direct engagement with it. And so to me, that's kind of a roadmap, including the idea of looking for resources that are well-matched to the particular issue. There's so much more that could be said, but with repetition, with repetition, and maybe with a little grace, uh, I am never going to bet against the human heart. Never, ever, ever going to bet against the healing, reparative possibilities. Uh, we may have to do the work. And we may still have a kind of trick knee, psychologically, that in, anytime we think about that event, we still get a charge, and maybe it's wisest to stay away from certain things. But with effort over time, even if that knee has been really damaged, maybe with some, th- you know, some rehab and a brace, we can still get back on the ski slopes, but avoid those moguls. But still, we can have a rich and full life nonetheless. So, maybe you. All right. And it's a very, very useful resource for trauma and many, many other things, self-compassion. So I'd like to do a practice with you here about this. And then after we come back from lunch, we'll talk about growing key resources. All right? Want to try a practice? You up for it? Okay. Compassion is simply, um, you know, the wish usually felt that, you know, um, the wish that beings not suffer with a tenderness, and generally the desire to help if one can. All right? Self-compassion simply applies that wish to oneself. If you think of it, compassion is a form of linking. Because we have the bitter of the suffering that we have empathic awareness of, and the sweet of the wish that it be relieved, wrapped around it, and a nurturing, and a tenderness, and a caring around the, the bitter of the suffering. That's linking. As with any kind of linking, it's really important to keep the positive bigger than the negative. And I'm using those terms loosely, positive and negative. Um, So, yes, there is an awareness of the suffering, including as we do self-compassion here, your own suffering. But primarily we want to stay focused on um, the lovingness, the caringness, the the loyalty, the commitment to justice, the the concern that is around the suffering. People practice self-compassion in different ways. Uh, There are some great teachers and programs. Uh, Kristen Neff, Christopher Germer have developed mindful self-compassion and uh, written about this. Uh, I'm going to go into this practice in three steps, kind of based on some research on the brain. Step one, um, starting with feeling cared about. Because for most people, as we receive feeling cared about, that kind of warms up our capacities to be caring, 
including applied to ourselves. Then I'll shift in the second step into an embodied sense of what compassion really feels like for others who are easy to have compassion for. And then in the third step, we'll do the thing that's actually hard for many people, which is to apply compassion to ourselves. Much research now on self-compassion shows that self-compassion makes us tougher, makes us stronger. It doesn't turn us into self-indulgent softies. It actually helps people bounce back from trauma and stress and and, uh, setbacks in better ways. Also, it helps people be more successful. Because if you have self-compassion for yourself, you're more willing to take chances at work and dare greatly, as Brene Brown puts it, and swing for the fences in the baseball metaphor. Because, you know, if it doesn't work, you won't like it, but you won't beat yourself up so hard. Self-compassion is a great corrective to over-the-top, harsh self-criticism. So let's try this practice, and in the practice, receive compassion into ourselves as we do this practice. Let's begin. If you can, just kind of coming here into the present, being here. Knowing and remembering that it's really okay, it's good to take good care of yourself in the practices we're doing. And if there's anything that you don't want to do, don't do it. It's okay. And if there's something that feels more useful to you to stay with, even though I'm moving on to the next thing, if you're really free to do that. In guided practices like we're doing here, necessarily a a teacher needs to talk. Over time, as, as you know how to do this for yourself, um, you can do it on your own. And you don't need to listen to somebody like me. Okay. So starting, see if you can start to have the experience of being cared about. One way or another. It's natural if other thoughts arise, like not being cared about or other feelings, Acknowledge those, be mindful of them, and then bring the spotlight of attention back to helping yourself feel increasingly cared about. You can bring to mind people, pets, other sources of feeling cared about. Any ways to feel cared about? Seen? Included? Appreciated? Liked? Or loved?
helping yourself turn the idea of being cared about authentically. Perhaps imperfectly, but still the caring that's real is real for you. Helping yourself turn the idea of this into an experience now of feeling liked. Feeling valued. Feeling loved. seems to have gotten a little cold in here. It's really okay to put on a jacket or sweater physically. Warming the body can actually help to feel more cared about. I'm sure they'll turn the heat up out there in mission control. As you help yourself feel increasingly cared about, you can enrich and absorb this experience. Maybe with a hand on your heart. It may seem goofy, but giving yourself a hug. Perhaps feeling a warmth coming into you, spreading inside you. Letting yourself have the experience. Focusing on experiences of being cared about. Okay, then in the second step, bringing to mind beings that you care about, especially ones you have compassion for. You're aware of their pain, their burdens, children, pets, friends, family, groups of people here or around the world. And 
and in a natural response to an awareness of their suffering, finding compassion, the wish that they not suffer, usually with sympathetic, tender concern, the desire to help if you can. You are activating, you are having experiences of compassion. the experience of compassion perhaps with soft thoughts like may you not suffer or perhaps something specific like may you find work may you find healing Compassion spreading inside you, perhaps rippling in waves, pervading your mind, above, below, in all directions. Other feelings can be woven together with the compassion, such as love or loyalty, commitment, friendliness. It's okay. compassion is like as an embodied experience. The feeling in your body, the attitude of it. And then in the third step here, apply this attitude, this feeling, this experience to yourself. Being aware of some of your own burdens, some of the things that are hard for you. Aware of physical pain, illness, 
aware of worries you have about others. And predominantly in your awareness, having goodwill for yourself. A sense of friendliness or support for yourself. A recognition, understandably, that this is hard for you. Or these things are hard for you. Whatever they may be. And with that, having thoughts of good wishes for yourself, such as, may I not suffer? Feelings of support. Feelings of encouragement or nurturance for yourself. Compassion for yourself. You might have an image of yourself kind of over there, outside. You see that person. You see the things they've had to deal with, the things they're dealing with today. And you find respect for them. You find good wishes rippling out from you to that being who is you. Maybe you find a lovingness, a a supportiveness for yourself. You might have soft thoughts, specific ones even. May I not suffer? May I not worry so much about that? May I let go of that pain? May my health improve. May I be at peace if it doesn't. May I be at ease. aware of your suffering and focusing mainly on good wishes for yourself.
We'll take another couple minutes here. You might have a sense of receiving compassion into yourself and related feelings of respect or tenderness, support, acknowledgement of what you've had to deal with or what you're dealing with today. Sinking into you, receiving care and compassion into yourself. What's it feel like to receive care and compassion into yourself? Letting yourself have it. And taking a final minute here, any way you like. Perhaps letting go of the focus on self-compassion and simply resting, simply being. Thanks for being willing to do that, have the courage to do that. Um, Before we slide into lunch, I'd like to quote 
two uh, major Dharma teachers. First, Pema Chodron. Uh, <clears throat> he says that the root of Buddhist practice, and maybe arguably all spiritual practice, is compassion. And the root of compassion is self-compassion. Very important. Then we have the other great Dharma teacher, Leonard Cohen. Who else? Who says, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets in. We're all cracked. Uh, We all need compassion. We all deserve compassion. Um, There's no being who does not deserve um, compassion, in my view, even if at the same time we might have different thoughts about them. Um, So um, how about we take a lunch break? I'll happily stick around. Uh, Please come back at five minutes after two, so an hour lunch break, and I'll get into key resources, especially calm, contentment, and confidence. See you then. Do I have my jacket out there? Okay, I'm good.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.